Good morning. It's uh, great to see you all here. Thanks for coming out in the cold, icy weather. Thanks for those of you watching online. I'm Pastor Kyle Thompson. We are continuing in this uh, study called Happy, in which we're trying to figure out how to be happy. It's a new year. We hope it's going to be better than the last two years. And so we're taking a unique approach. We're looking at what the Bible teaches us theologically about being happy. We're also looking at what science teaches us about being happy. And we're relying on uh, Dr. Lori Santos from Yale University, uh, who teaches a class about happiness. It's the most popular class on happiness in the whole world. Over 3.7 million people have taken it online, and she's a really smart lady. And so we'll be referencing a lot of her information today. And we've just been asking everybody, once a day, take kind of a, a gauge of your own happiness on a scale of 0 to 10. Where are you? 0 being absolutely not happy and 10 being completely happy. Where are you today? And why did you move up or why did you move down from where you were yesterday? Maybe keep a journal of that as we talk about what it means to be happy. We realize you're not going to be happy all the time, right? And the Bible says there's a season for everything. Sometimes we're going to be sad and sometimes we're going to be angry and sometimes we're going to be happy. So uh, we're going to keep talking about that today. At the end of last year, uh, right before the, the year wrapped up, one of my friends, uh, Dr. Otto Harris, who is an African-American uh, United Methodist pastor here in Charlotte, he's preached for me here at our church before, and we've done some cool things together, invited me to be a part of uh, kind of a seminar of local clergy uh, to come together and talk about racial reconciliation. And this is, was going to happen at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary here in Charlotte. The campus is out near Carowinds. And it was going to be for two days, uh, two Thursdays, back-to-back. And it's the whole day you'd be there, and there'd be black pastors, white pastors, and we'd come together and just talk about racial reconciliation in our community and world. And I said, absolutely, Otto. I'd love to be a part of that. Thanks for inviting me. And so I went to the very first one, the first Thursday, and got there. And there were about 20, 25 pastors who were there. And I'd say about two-thirds were black and about one-third were white. Uh, went around introducing ourselves, and most of them were not just pastors, they were also PhDs, and so some really smart people there. I uh, felt like I was way in over my head kind of a thing, but they were super nice and friendly, and so uh, with that small of a group, uh, it, it, usually when I go to these things, it's a big group, and you have a big session, and you have these breakout sessions, which we did, and the big sessions are really cordial, and the breakout sessions, you know, you might get a little more personal with each other. With just about 20, 25 people, the whole session felt personal. And I was kind of caught off guard because, you know, usually these things, you know, nothing controversial happens or whatever, but it didn't take long before we started talking about racial reconciliation in the American church in Charlotte. And people were getting mad, white people, black people, like this, you know, anxiety and tension and one of the black pastors stood up and said, until we talk about white supremacy in America and in the American churches in Charlotte, then we're wasting our time. And he was mad. And I said, Otto, what'd you get me into? <laughs> I would like to say that, but Otto didn't even show up. And so he left me hanging there by myself. What did you get me into and not even show up for, man? Like, this is a little more than I had anticipated. And, and I had to ask myself a question. Kyle, why are you here? Are you here to check off a box and say, hey, I took a seminar on racial reconciliation. Look how woke I am. You know, Pastor Kyle, that's cool. Or do I really want to learn something? Do I really want to hear from my black brothers and sisters as we talk about what it means to be black and white in America together in these stressful times in the midst of protests and shootings and all kinds of things that have been going on? And so I'm glad that I stuck around and, and, and sat in on that because I'm guessing 
you're probably like me, that we want justice in our world. We want justice in our nation where everyone is treated equally. Whether you're black and white or brown or yellow, whether you're male or female, whether you're young or old, you know, whatever the case, we want everyone to be treated equally. I think we would all say that we want that. I think we all want that. And I think as you think about being happy in America, there's a lot of unhappiness because that's not the way that it is, right? There's a system that favors one group over many others, and there's lots of anxiety and stress and anger and just injustice. And so we're not happy from a racial reconciliation standpoint in the world, and I think that also makes God unhappy. And so maybe today for us to spend some time wrestling with this. I was going to preach this last Sunday because last Sunday was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King weekend and, uh, of course, the ice came. But I didn't want to let go of this because I think it's an important topic. And to be honest with you, it's hard to talk about that for some, for some of us, all of us, actually. And, you know, I was kind of wrestling with God when, you know, I thought he was wanting me to preach about this. And I'm like, God, you know... I'm glad to do that, but I'm probably going to stand up and I'm probably going to offend everybody who's watching or who's in person at some point in the message, right? Whether you're white or black, whether you're young or old, male or female, probably going to offend you today. But God, if that's what you want me to do, then I think that's important. Because one thing that I learned from my black brothers and sisters is that if you're silent, that also sends a message, right? Rather risk offending someone than being quiet, because silence can mean a couple of different things. It can mean, one, you just don't care. You, you just don't care about racial reconciliation, or that you might be complicit. You might be racist, and, and you don't want to talk about it because you're racist, right? And so today, I just want to invite you into a conversation about racial reconciliation as followers of Jesus. What does that look like? And so I want to thank you for being bold enough to stay in your seats and just walk through this together, because I think it's something that God wants. God wants everyone to be treated equally, and, and if we want to have a happy society, we all have to be on equal footing. And so, thank you for being here, and let me just open with the prayer that God will guide us in this process. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the chance to come together and to talk today. God, make us bold as we wrestle with a subject that makes us all feel uncomfortable. God, give us compassion for people uh, who are different than us. And God, today, give us an open mind uh, that we might learn something, that this sermon isn't for the person sitting next to me, but it's for me today, for all of us, that we might all learn something, Lord, about being allies in this together. Thank you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray today. Amen. I'd like to begin today by just talking about a theological or biblical perspective on all of this. And I want to start off in the Old Testament in the book of Micah. Micah was a prophet, which means Micah was a spokesperson for God. God gave Micah a message to give to the people of Israel. And this was about 700 years before Jesus was born. And the people of Israel were in trouble with God because they weren't doing the right thing. They were acting immorally. They were cheating each other. They were exploiting each other for economic gain to make money. They were you know, messing over somebody else. And so it's just a bad situation, worshiping false gods. Uh, and so the people of Israel want to know, how can we be made right with God again? How can we get back in God's good graces? How can we be forgiven? And so Micah is responding to this question. So let's look at Micah 6, 6. The people of Israel want to know, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Because you remember at this time in Israel's history, the way they worshiped God was to offer up a sacrifice of some of the animals that they own, right? It's the most important thing that they had. It's a way to be forgiven. It's a way to worship God. So what do we need to offer you, God, to make things right? Will you be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, right? Not just animals. God, do I need to kill my own child? That's pretty powerful, right? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. This is what Micah says in response. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, which means do the right thing, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't want your sacrifices. I definitely don't want you to kill your children. I don't want your offerings. What I want you to do is to do the right thing, treat each other well, to be merciful with one another, and to be humble and to walk humbly with me. I want to jump forward to the New Testament. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. This is where Jesus has been asked a question by someone saying, of all the 600 plus commands in the Jewish religion, which is the most important? And Jesus said the most important is to love God with everything that you have. And then he says this, and a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So the most important things are to love God, love neighbor. And so then he said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told a story and Basically, the, the short answer is your neighbor is whoever you come into contact with. But Jesus said that your neighbor, a Jewish person, he used an example in the story of a Samaritan. And a Samaritan was someone the Jewish people hated. Right? They, they saw them as being half-breeds, half right? They, Jewish people intermarried with people who weren't Jewish. And so they were different ethnicity now, and they hated each other. And Jesus said, that's your neighbor. That's who you need to love. So I think very clearly from the very beginning, God loves us all equally. All of us are created in God's image, black and white and brown and yellow, whatever, right? Male and female, old, young, we're all created in God's image, and we're good because of that, right? We're all equal in God's eyes. And Jesus came into the world to die on a cross for all of us, right? John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his only son, right? God didn't just say, God, you know, so loved the Middle East, or God loved Africa, or God loved North America, or God loved white people, God loved black people, right? God loves everybody, right? So from God's perspective, we are all children of God, equal in God's eyes, and we should all treat each other in that way. So that's what I think the Bible clearly says, and yet we don't live into that, and yet there is not racial equality, and yet Many of us are silent on justice issues. We believe in it, but we don't do anything about that. Maybe because we're intimidated or maybe because we don't know where to start or maybe, we just, maybe we're racist, maybe we're prejudiced, right? But God says we are all equal. I've created everyone. I died for everyone. We should all love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself, all right? So that's theology. That's scripture, right? Let's look at, let's look at science. I want to introduce you to uh, a scientist here. Uh, who's written a great book about this. This is Dolly Chug, and uh, she wrote, The Person That You Mean to Be, right? How Good People Fight Bias. A lot of us think that we're, we're more non-prejudiced or more less racist than we actually are. So she's like, if you really want to fight bias, right, we need to do some work, right? So that's a great book. I invite you to check that out. Uh, but she has a, one of her main points is this, right? Believing that there should be justice in the world is great. It's great. We all want that. Believing in justice is great, but the belief in justice by itself is not going to bring justice into the world. Right? But the belief in justice is great, but it's not going to change the systems in America 
that promote one group, white people above everyone else, right? And so her challenge is to move from being a believer in justice to being a builder in justice. It's not enough to say it's wrong. It's not enough to believe that there's injustice in the world. She says we have to move from belief into builder, right? So we want to not just believe in justice, we have to build justice. We have to be active. And she says it's very difficult to do that for many reasons. And one of those is just identifying systematic racism is really hard because it's hard to see that. But you can look at the statistics and see that if we're white in America, that we have advantages when it comes to education and employment and health care, right? All sorts of things like that, uh, getting jobs, finding a place to live, right? We have advantages. Uh, someone said to me after the first service, it's kind of like when you're at the airport and, you know, you've got somebody who's walking to the gate and then you have those moving sidewalks, right? And you get on the moving sidewalk and you walk and you're going in the same direction, but one gets there quicker. Like that's the system in America that it favors. Some of us are on that fast track and some of us are just trying to keep up. And it's hard to see that. And, and she goes on to say, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid or maybe you're a kid now and you get those little books that you can write with invisible ink. You ever done that? You know, you write with invisible ink and you write this cool little message. And the only way to see it is by like shining like an ultraviolet light on it. And then you giggle at what you've written, you know, that kind of stuff. And she said, that's what systematic racism is. We have, to, we have to shine the light on that to see what's favoring one group in America uh, from other groups in America. And it's hard. And a lot of us don't want to see it in the first place. Our brains don't want to admit that. And so we don't go there. And so it's a challenging thing to do. Um, so I want to think about that. You know, why don't we get involved? Why don't we speak up? Why don't we interject? Why don't we write a congressperson? Right? Why don't we do that? Because of our minds, for those of us who are in the privileged category of the white people living in America, we just don't want to admit that. We don't want to see that because it causes us to be uncomfortable. It causes us to be uncomfortable. So I want to give you guys kind of an experiment today. Uh, just to ask you a question to think about in your mind. Uh, on a scale of one to seven, with one being that you strongly disagree with this statement and seven that you strongly agree with it, where would you land? Right? My life has been full of hardships. If your life's been full of hardships, really, really hard, then you're going to be somewhere close to a seven. If your life's been a good life, not a lot of hard things to go through, you're going to be down one, two, or three. Just take a second, put that mental number in your mind. Where are you? My life is full of hardships, right? Hang on to that number, all right? And now, those of us who are white, I want to ask you to take the quiz again. But I want you to remember what I just said. Like, we live in a country that has systems in place that give us privilege. And so, when it comes to getting a job, getting an education, getting health care, getting housing, we have benefits that the rest of the nation don't have. And so we go through similar hardships, uh, but we don't have a skin color that gives us even more. So white people, with all that in mind, does your number change? Would you stay the same? Would you go down? Would you go up? What would your number change? If you think about we have privilege in America that gives us less opportunity probably to face hardships, what would your number be? Right? Just keep that in your mind. Now, you're probably guessing that most white people, after they hear that and after their pastor calls them out on that, that they would go from a high number down to a low number. Maybe I'm not as hardship-laden as I thought. You know, there are some things in the world, right? We would think that our number would go down, but the scientists that study this study said that when they, they actually had white people write this down, 
the number stayed the same or it went up. People doubled down. How dare you tell me I don't have a hard life? How dare you tell me I don't have hardships in my life? You don't know what I'm going through, so I'm sticking with my number, or I'm going to make my number go higher. Right? I'm not getting privilege in the community. There's no way that that's going on. Right? So the science says we hang on or that number gets higher. And, and I don't want to take away from anyone's hardships. I don't know what you've walked, and I know some of what you guys have walked, and it's hard. White, black, I know you've, you've dealt with a lot. But in our, in our culture, we all deal with a lot, and then we have to deal with our skin color and what that brings on us as well. Right? It's, but, but our white minds reject that. And this is what um, Dr. Santos calls that. If we can go to that next slide. Motivational reasoning, right? We access, construct, and evaluate arguments in a biased fashion to arrive at or to endorse a preferred conclusion. What does that mean in regular English? This is what I think it means in regular English. We see what we want to see rather than seeing the truth. And a lot of us with white skin, what we want to see is we don't have an advantage. We're not privileged. There's no systematic racism in place. Don't make me feel guilty for something that I'm benefiting from that I didn't create. And so we see what we want to see, and we reject the idea of systematic racism uh, and that our lives are easier, even though we have hardships in them, but our lives are easier because we have white skin living in this country. Hang on with me, white people. Hang on, right? This, we're going somewhere. This is hard. This is hard. Hang on. All of you hang on with me if, if you don't mind, right? But, but we, have to, we have to face the fact that we don't have it as hard as our black brothers and sisters or our brown brothers and sisters, right? That, that there are things in place that, that keep them from rising to what we rise as easily as we do, right, in all these areas that I've mentioned. Uh, and it's hard for us to admit that. It's hard for us to feel bad about that. It's hard for us because, again, our brains reject that. But I would say that all of us, no matter what color we have, there's some racism in us, there's some prejudice in us, there's something inside of us that we really have to be honest about and wrestle with. And we have to grapple with that. At some point, we have to tell God that we're sorry. At some point, we're going to make a mistake, we're going to do something overtly, we're going to have to apologize to someone that we've hurt, right? And so our brains can't keep making excuses for us. At some point, we have to own it. And we have, to, we have to make amends for that. Um, I want to take a time out here and just talk about like making amends and repenting and, and giving an apology, not just for black-white issues, but life in general, like when you upset your spouse or you upset your best friend or you beat up your brother or your sister, right? Just want to think about when we do something wrong, how we make amends for that. A big part of that is just simply saying, I'm sorry, I messed up, right? And so I think a, a real apology means exactly that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry that I hurt you. And just own it. Right? But you probably, if you watch TV or listen to people when they make apologies, this is usually what people says to do an apology. I'm sorry if I hurt you. I'm sorry if that offended you. Right? That's not a true apology. That's a passive-aggressive way of not taking responsibility. Right, it's putting it back on the person that you've hurt. Right? That is not an apology. If, if you're really trying to apologize to your spouse, your friend, your brother, your sister, whatever, please just say, I'm sorry that I did this, and would you please forgive me? Don't use the word if. Right? I'm sorry if. Right? Uh, I know that sounds like a small thing, but it's true. So listen. Right? When people apologize on television, politicians, whatever, see how many of them use if because, again, it's our brain trying to avoid Right, taking responsibility for what we've done. All right, sorry to get off my soapbox about apologies. 
and get back to the, the point at hand. Let's look at some more science about how sometimes our brains don't let us admit some of the racism or the prejudice that we have in, in our minds. Um, and some of the scientist, Dr. Santos, talks about having a fixed mindset. This is basically what it says. We're stuck in our, in our brains. Like, this is what I believe about the world. This is what I believe about America. This is what I believe about systems in America. This is what I believe about racism. I don't need to hear anymore. I know what it is. Don't try to tell me there's a system when there's not a system. Right? We, we get something fixed in our mind, and we're stuck with it. Right? I'm a good person. Well, why did you just tell a racist joke? It doesn't matter. I'm a good person, right? I'm not a racist. You just told a racist joke, right? I just had a racist thought, right? We get things fixed in our mind and we stick with it and we're not open, right? We don't admit that we have problems. We don't admit that we're not perfect, right? We get in this fixed mindset. This is the way it is in America. This is what I think about it. I'm right and you're wrong and don't even try to talk to me about that. We get stuck. And it's not just with racism. We see this on TV all the time, don't we? We see it in politics all the time. We, we see it everywhere. People get stuck in a mindset. I'm guessing you people know some stubborn people in your families, in your lives, right at work, right? We get this fixed mindset, and it just doesn't lead to anybody being happy. So the scientists say that you should move from having a fixed mindset to having a growth mindset, which basically means I'm not perfect, right? I'm not perfect. I, I make mistakes. I'm a good person, but I'm not all the way perfect, and so I've, I've got some learning to do. I have mistakes. I need to apologize when I, I make a mistake, right? I need to grow, right? Maybe there is more to this whole idea of systematic racism than I thought about. I need to research that for myself and see if it might be true. Have I, have I benefited from a system that I don't know really exists, right? To be open right, to, to, to having a, a growth mindset. Another way of maybe thinking about this is I'm not where I need to be yet right? versus I'm a good person. I'm arrived. I'm, I've got it all together, right? I'm not where I need to be yet. In your mind, is it more of a fixed mindset or a growth mindset? Right? Not just about racism, but just in general. Are we open to new things? Or are we, are, we Have we got everything figured out? Right? Where are we in that? And so the science, the scientists say we should really be moving more towards the growth mindset from the fixed mindset. And theology in the Bible back that up. Absolutely. Let's go to the Bible. We're going to be in the New Testament now with the Apostle Paul who wrote all these letters to the churches that he started in the first century in the New Testament world. And we're going to read what he has to say about some of this. So we'll start with his letter to the Romans. Uh, this righteousness, right, being made right with God, with people, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile, right? Non-Jewish person. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Growth mindset. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. We all sin, do the wrong thing at some point in our lives. All of us, black, white, male, female, young, old, we all fall short of the glory of God. And all of us are justified, right? We're made right with God freely by Jesus' grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Right? That beautiful song that we sang with Cole earlier today, right? the name of Jesus. Right? Jesus came to save us. Right? Jesus created in his image, which is great, but we make mistakes. We do wrong things against God. That's called sin. Because of that, we have guilt and shame. We're going to die one day, and we're going to experience hell, which means brokenness, broken relationship with God, broken relationship with each other. You don't have to die to go to hell. Right? We know what brokenness is like. Right? Jesus doesn't want that. So Jesus died on a cross so we could be forgiven. We can have joy and peace. We can live life to the full and live forever in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did that for us on the cross. 
We ask Jesus to forgive us. We ask him to be our Lord and Savior. And Jesus comes in and he justifies us, right? Justification means to be made right with God, right? We use the word saved. I'm saved by Jesus. I am going to heaven, right? I have life to the full. I'm forgiven, right? Jesus makes things right with God. When he dies on the cross, when he comes back to life, he gives us the gateway back to God, right? And so Jesus does that for us. We just have to accept that we become justified, right? But that doesn't mean that we are now perfect, that we don't make mistakes, that we don't stop sinning, right? Even though Jesus has saved us, we've been justified, we're right with God, God's going to take us to heaven, we're not perfect yet, and we still do things, right? We still yell at our kids, we still cheat on our taxes, right? We still do things that we shouldn't do. We still think racist and prejudiced thoughts. So this is what God does for us next after we have this relationship with Christ, Right? Paul continues to go on with our next scripture, this time to the Thessalonians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That word sanctify means to be made holy. Okay? Sanctification means to be made holy. So once we accept Jesus, we're going to heaven, we're saved, we're justified, we're in a right relationship with God, but we still have some sin that needs to be cleaned up in our hearts and in our actions. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon us and walks with us the rest of our lives to make us more holy, to make us be more like Jesus in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. We become more holy for the rest of our lives with the Holy Spirit. Right? We're already saved, we're justified, but we're still got some work to do, right? None of us are perfect. And so this process is called the process of transformation. Chris mentioned that earlier. It's one of our three core values. God helps us become the people we're created to be. Right? God is helping you become the people we're created to be. That's exactly what these scientists call the growth mindset. We haven't figured it all out yet. We're not perfect. We've got work to do with the Holy Spirit, right? We're being transformed into the people God created us to be. God is continuing to help us to fight against our prejudice. God's helping us to fight against our own racism. God's helping us to fight against this, this dislike or distrust of anything that is other than us. Right? We see it everywhere. Right? So again, science, theology, saying to be happy, we've got to grow. We've got to be open to growing in our lives. We've got to let the Holy Spirit transform us to be more like Jesus in our words, thoughts, and actions. And the more we're like Jesus, the happier we're going to be, right? And so it's cool to see, again, science and theology in the Bible lining up, especially when it comes to racial relationships with our brothers and our sisters who different skin color, different ethnicity than us. Um, they did a, a couple of different studies, and it's interesting that if um, – someone made a racist comment or did something racist that if a white person calls them out and a black person calls them out using the same exact words, they'll listen more to the white person than they will to the black person, right? Just because it's the white person saying it than the black person. They'll feel more remorseful if a white person calls them out than if a black person calls them out. It does, it, it's not fair. It's not cool. But it, it says white people that we have something that we need to leverage. And this is what Dr. Santos calls it. She calls it ordinary privilege, right? The ability to forget about aspects of who you are because they represent the majority demographics. Because white people in America have been the majority, right? 
we have an influence that other minorities don't have. And we should use that influence, right, our ordinary privilege for good, right? If we want to defeat racism and bias in our country, then white people need to be a big part of that. We're not going to do it all. We can't do it all, but we have to have a voice and we have to be a part of that to use our ordinary, right, privilege to be able to do that. I want to introduce you to a guy named uh, Richard Lapchick, right? This is him right here with Nelson Mandela. Uh, and he was a big activist, is a big activist uh, in America. And uh, his father played for the Boston Celtics in the National Basketball Association back in the 1920s, right? And so Richard used to go around with his dad to all the games, uh, big-time star, all this kind of stuff. And that's back when uh, basketball was segregated. So there were no black players in the NBA, they had their own league for black players. And so the Celtics back in the 20s decided this is not cool. So they decided to play against uh, one of the black teams from New York, the New York Rens, and they would tour around America playing each other, trying to work on racial reconciliation. And you can imagine in the 1920s, this was not a popular thing. And so people would come to the game, and they would jeer and throw bottles and all kinds of stuff. And, and the players were trying to bring ra- racial reconciliation, but the crowds weren't, and, and all the players, black and white, would keep knives in their socks because they were afraid that the crowd was going to rush them after games. Like, it was that bad, right? And so Richard Lapchick grew up in that environment and saw his father try to be an advocate for racial reconciliation, and he followed that route. He was also a basketball player. He's also a good basketball player. He went to some cool big basketball camps, and one of those camps, they let in a black player for the very first time, and uh, some of the other white guys were giving him a hard time. One of them called him the N-word like several times. And Richard Lepchick went up to him and said, you've got to stop using that word. And you've got to let him alone and let him play using his ordinary privilege to influence these other white players. And they stopped because he intervened. Right? He was bold. He, he used what God had given him in this society. Right? God didn't give him the, the privilege in society, but he used his whiteness right, to, to take up for that player who turns out to be, you may have heard of him, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? The highest scoring player in NBA history, right? And so the point is, he leveraged what he had to speak up for someone, right? He leveraged what he had to speak up for someone, and he became a professor. He became an advocate. And he was so good at what he did that, that some white supremacists broke into his office one day, and they beat him up, and they tortured him, and they got some scissors out of his desk, and they carved the N-word on his stomach with the scissors, right? This is a man who believed in fighting for what was right at any cost. Uh, and he continues to do that today. Right? What I'm saying is, those of us who are white have to use our position to fight so that all people can be equal. Now, I want you to hear this. We're not the saviors, right? We're, we're not the ones who are going to save everyone else. That's not our job, right? We can't be arrogant enough to think that. Right? And it's not saying that black people can't speak for themselves. Right, Dr. King did and did an amazing job. But what I'm saying is we have to be allies. We have to be allies for one another. Right? We've got to come together and be allies to make this possible. Right? We all have to be on the same team. Right? We've got to be on the same team fighting racism, fighting bias, fighting systematic racism in America today. Right? So getting back to when I was at the seminar, Right, and my friend Otto kind of ditched me, and I'm in there, and he's getting all heated and stuff. It was a, it was a hard first day, and I went home and talked about it with Lord. I said, "Ooh, that's tough. I don't know if I'm too excited about going to the next one, you know." But uh, 
I went back. I'm glad I did. And we, we had some more discussion. And um, I was really kind of quiet that first, that first Thursday. Because at some point when I've been going to seminars like this, I had a white pastor friend take me aside and say, you know what? We, we white people, we talk too much. We need to go to these seminars. We don't need to talk so much. We need to listen to our, our black brothers and sisters. And that's absolutely right. But when I got back to that seminar, right, we were in this group discussion, and the, the group called me out, especially the black people, my black colleagues, and they're like, Kyle, we haven't heard from you. We want to hear from you. You're here. Why are you here? You represent South Park, right? That's an important community in our, in our city. What do you think about this? What, what, what are your white people in your congregation, what are they doing to fight racism? What, what do you think? Like, what's going on in their minds? Can you help us understand what the South Park perspective on racism is. And that's kind of a tall order for me to answer for everybody in South Park, right? Uh, but this is what I told them. I said, all right, I'm just going to be honest, probably going to offend some of you, but this is kind of my assessment of my congregation, those who are white in the congregation. I would say that most all of them are against injustice, and they, would, they see people equally. They would fight for everybody to be equal, all that kind of stuff. They don't tell racist jokes that I know of. They have friends who are different colors and ethnicities. Uh, they welcome them in their homes. We'd love to welcome them into our church, right? Just good people. Uh, and most of them are, you know, just they're living life every day, right? It's, it, life is good. Life is hard. You get up and you're stressed about your job. You're stressed about your health. You're stressed about your relationship with your kids, your grandkids. You're stressed about money. And we go through our life every day, and it's, it's just... It's, it's a victory if we get through life every day, right? At the end of, life, end of that, I think a lot of people in my congregation don't want to have people come on the news and say that they're responsible for 200 years of racism and oppression when they weren't even born for all of that. And it's a heavy thing to carry on their shoulders that they're responsible for all the racism that's happened for 200 years. I'm thinking that's a lot of what's probably in people's minds and hearts. It doesn't mean that they're not interested. Some of them are out protesting some of them are you know studying it in small groups like this just just an interesting time in which we live that's probably where a lot of us land and so we started talking about that in small group and that that one african-american man who got so mad about white supremacy was sitting next to me and he wanted to learn more about it he's like i hear you i hear you but you can't use that as an excuse you can't use it as an excuse not to get involved in trying to advocate against racist systems. It's, like, it's tough living your life, all that kind of stuff. We're not blaming you for everything that's happened for 200 years, but you can't stick your head in the sand either. Right? You've got to get in the game. And he said to me, he's like, even us as pastors, right, Methodist pastors, he's like, you know that it's, it's not fair that there's not a lot of black pastors who are in larger churches and he's like, you know, the next time you're playing golf with our boss, you know, the district superintendent, you need to talk to him about that. And I said, well, actually, you're making some assumptions about me that are not true. Just because I live in South Park or, you know, serve in South Park doesn't mean that I play golf. <laughs> and actually, my slice could kill someone. So you, you don't want me on the golf course. And secondly, I don't hang out with my boss socially. He's not inviting me out to the golf course, right? So we all have different assumptions about each other are not always true, right? And I called him out on that, and we laughed about that. Um, but he's right. We're in a position that have privilege, and we have power, and we've got to speak to this in our lives. And when we don't, then we're not only failing God, we're failing one another. And so for me, like, that was a good conversation. Right? 
And one of the white guys who was at the first seminar didn't come to the second seminar. He's one of the ones who really got mad about this stuff. And people noticed that. And I felt really bad that he didn't show up. And I felt better that I showed up, right? Because, and not to pat myself on the back, but to say to you, a lot of it, racial reconciliation is simply showing up in the room and being with people and talking to people. It doesn't have to be rocket science. You you just got to show up and be in a relationship. So what's the point today? What's the big idea? What's the takeaway? This is heavy. Thank you guys for sticking with it. I know it's hard. This is what I think. And this is what Richard Lapchick, actually, it's his quote. I stole it from him. Everybody cannot be on the front lines, but everybody needs to get off the sidelines. Everybody cannot be on the front lines, right? But everybody needs to get off the sidelines. We all got to get in the game. We all got to do something, right, to fight against racism, to fight against prejudice. So I'd like to invite you to think about a couple of things. One action step is this. Be transformed, right? Adopt a growth mindset. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you grow, right? To be more holy, to be like Jesus, right? Be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Adopt a growth mindset is what the scientists would say, right? We've talked a lot about that. The other thing I'd like to invite you to do is just get involved in some way as an ally to those who are marginalized, right? And it's not just black, white, right? There's, there's male, female, there's, there's ageism, there's all kinds of things for, for white people, black people, all of us, right, to get involved in some way as an ally, be an ally to those who are marginalized in our society. And these are some things maybe you can think about, like, so what does that mean? Like, practically, one, build a relationship with somebody who's different than you. Build a relationship with someone who is different than you, right? Get uncomfortable. Have an uncomfortable conversation. Again, it's better to offend somebody in trying to get to know them than to remain silent, right? Be uncomfortable. Have an uncomfortable conversation. Do your homework. What is systematic racism? Right? Is it real? I think so. Right? Look it up. Google it. Research it. Right? Do the homework yourself. Right? There are systems in place that favor groups over the other. Do your homework. Right? Use your ordinary privilege. Right? Use your ordinary privilege. As it was white skin, use your ordinary privilege to advocate right? against racism, against bias. Right? Speak up. Listen. Apologize. Right? Real apology. Right? Make amends. And enjoy life together. Right? My life is better because I have a diverse group of people in my life that make me better, make me happier. Right? I, I want to I wanna be happy in life. You know, and I think what it really comes down for me too as a pastor, as a man of God, is I can't not be truly happy in my life if you're not truly happy in your life. I can't be truly happy in my life if you can't be happy in your life because of your skin color or your education level or your gender or your age, whatever it is, if you're not happy, then I'm not happy. Because we're connected. We're children of God. So I just would encourage you maybe to think about that. How can we be happy when our brothers and sisters around us are not happy? And what gives me hope is when I see, like, my children with their friends in our neighborhood and at school, they're black kids and white kids, and there's Asian kids and there's Hispanic kids, and and they're just kids. They play together, and, and they don't care what color they are. They, they love to play football and jump on the trampoline and ride their bikes. And, you know, adults, I think we forgot how to do that. They just love each other because they're people, and they're children of God. And, and I, I don't think it's extremely difficult for us to let God get us back to that. 
Everybody can't be on the front lines, but everybody needs to get off the sidelines. Do something. Do one thing. Do one thing to be an ally for those on the margins because that's what Jesus calls us to do. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Now I invite you to stand and help sing our closing song.